Fox Sports Radio. Radio. Do not, do not, do not touch that dial. You heard the man. It's time for Fox Sports Sunday, and we've got a ton on the docket. So let's get busy. And on that note, please put your seat backs forward, your trade tables upright. We're ready for takeoff. My name is Bernie Fratto. I'm coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. And we'll take you up to 3 a.m. Pacific, 6 a.m. Eastern, along with my savvy and capable crew, Bo Benson, Chris Perfett, and Brian Finley, on the updates as they will man the ship from our Los Angeles compound and turning all the dials, keeping us glued together. Man, we've got a lot. We, we've, we've got Selection Sunday right around the corner. The NFL draft debate is raging. That's already started, including interesting subjects like hand size, among other fodder. And, of course, Major League Baseball, spring training. Hey, it's in full bloom out in the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, two out of three ain't bad, if you get my drift. We've also got names in the news and an Aaron Rodgers update. USFL, they drafted their quarterbacks, too, and they're, now they're getting sued. I'll explain. What happened? A WNBA team that violated their CBA? Well, at least they have a CBA. I don't know how much that helps Brittany Griner. This is a real developing situation we'll get to later in the show. That plus, what kind of brand new fool are you? And what my name in the final hour, as well as Chris Perfett's report on the world of soccer. But first, we take a hard look at the game of chicken. The test of wills, their crusade, known as the Major League Baseball CBA negotiations. So you can get the detail as to why they couldn't get a deal done by the deadline. All right, let's begin with the beginning. Baseball's an $11 billion industry. It was a $1 billion industry in 1994. Why is that significant? Because that's when this whole ratcheted up angst and animosity and animus between the owners and the players really took a full bloom when the World Series was canceled in August of 94. It was all about a drag on salaries then. It was all about how the owners wanted a salary cap then. It was all about players not getting their share of rising revenues then, just like now. Together, the two have grown the game from $1 billion to $11 billion. They've, they've formulated a, an econometric model that works. Now, what's an econometric model? That's nothing more than understanding the percentages of of expenses and costs versus your revenues and keeping them in line. TV contracts are lucrative, attendance is healthy, all those things, regardless of it. I'm tired of the echo chamber saying baseball's dead. You couldn't be more wrong. Long and short of it is, though, this ordeal between the two sides is left people scratching their heads again. And you have to understand that when I put forth my oratory here, what I'm giving you is subjective journalism. I'm not taking sides. But you need to know the whole story, not part of the story. You know, I, it's just not as simplistic as billionaires fight with millionaires. This is not the case, especially when 70% of the league doesn't make a million dollars. Look, look. let's, let's, let's get to the, the, the fact of the matter, the facts of the matter. In the last four years, although revenues continue to rise in Major League Baseball, aggregate salaries have declined. Now, why is that? They're down 4.7% since 2017, and baseball salaries in 2021 cumulatively were the lowest since 2015. 
And the 2016 negotiations, the players felt they lost big and they're hell-bent from leather on winning this time. So there's an element here. There's an element of anger, an element of distrust that just won't ever go away. So when they got to last weekend and the self-imposed deadline by the owners was was marching toward the dead, you know, Monday night bleeding into Tuesday morning, I was tweeting pretty much every day then almost every hour on the hour whenever I had updates and I never once believed they'd get a deal. Never. Not not by that stupid deadline. And I'm going to tell you why. There's four reasons. First of all, Major League Baseball locked out the union December 1st. This is a lockout, not a strike. Now, why did they lock them out? It was a an intended move, a shot across the bow, so that the players couldn't strike like they did in 1994. See, that collective bargaining agreement expired on January 31st, 1993, and the union and the player and the owners agreed to play the 94 season, negotiate in good faith, and they sort of did that for a while. Then on May 27th, of players voted to strike on August 11th if there wasn't a deal. Sure enough, they struck on August 11th, and then three weeks later, Bud Selig went on Nightline and they canceled the World Series. I'll never forget that. End of the world, sort of. Well, the owner said, we're not going to let that happen this time, so we're going to lock you out. But one of the things Rob Manfred said is if you lock you out, see, what that'll do is jumpstart negotiations. Well, really? Then why did you wait 43 days? And so reason number one why I knew they weren't going to get a deal by the deadline is because up until Monday, it was a test of wills. It was a game of chicken. It was a crusade. And Monday, they actually negotiated. They actually negotiated. The problem is when you wait 90 days, and try to stuff three weeks of what should have been three weeks versus back and forth talks into 16 hours. Logistically, it's not going to work. You know that. There were 17 items on the table. And the big three, the pre-arbitration bonus pool, the minimum salary, and then, of course, the elephant in the room, the CBT, the competitive balance tax, which was originally known as the luxury tax, which was born after the 95 strike. Because the owners didn't want to, the owners wanted a salary cap. They didn't get it. They got what they think is the next best thing, which is the luxury tax, which baseball now calls the competitive balance tax because Rob Manfred swears this keeps the game in line. And, well, interestingly enough, no one's repeated in 20 years, and there's been some parity, but I think it's a bit disingenuous because the owners have been using, they've been using the luxury tax as a de facto salary cap for a while. Only two teams went over the salary cap last year. See, I just called it a salary cap. The luxury tax, the CBT, the Dodgers and Padres. There were several teams that butted right up against it. Within two, three, four, seven million. The average baseball payroll is 115 million per team. The TV contracts regionally and nationally are so lucrative, every team has about $100 million before they sell a single ticket. And there are teams that have $80 million payrolls, $50 million payrolls. What are they doing with that money? And by the way, speaking of money, don't think that players and owners are cavalier about missing games. It's going to happen, but they're not as cavalier as you might think. For every game missed, the players' union cumulatively loses $21 million in collectively in collective salaries. And we're going to get to a point before too long where the owners are going to have to provide rebates back to the regional TV partners if these games aren't on TV. So reason number one, you waited 90 days to try to stuff three weeks into 16 hours. 
The second thing is they got up and left before getting a deal. Now, in 1990, there's, there was a similarity. There was a real similarity in that they had a short lockout during spring training, but the two sides got together one night. They went straight through to 6 in the morning, and they hammered out a deal and got back on the field. Much different times, way before social media, way before the canceled 94 World Series, but they got it done. I tweeted out and I said it. If the owners leave this meeting before they have a deal and they reconvene later or something, start to get worried because you just lose that momentum. The dynamic changes. Both sides go back to their factions. You start putting more cooks in the kitchen. And you start to find out you're really farther apart than you, further apart than you think you are. And I thought it was a little bit of dirty pool, by the way, that uh, the owners and, and their media people were leaking heading into Sunday and Monday and Friday, that, hey, good good day today, good day. No, it wasn't. But what that enabled Rob Manfred to do when he got on the microphone Tuesday was saying, we made a fair deal, it just weren't reasonable. They set him up for that. And make no mistake, there is a moral component to this, which is also adding to the conflict. You know, one of the things here that has really bothered the players' union is the, the manipulation of free agent of the free agency eligibility. Could I have botched that any worse? Let me try that again in English. There's been some dirty pool here. There's a moral component because the owners have, in fact, manipulated service time eligibility as players march towards their chance to file for free agency. Case in point, Chris Bryant, 2015. That's the poster child case. Just to set this up so you know, because I told you we're going to go granular. When a Major League Baseball player gets to the big leagues, his days of service start on day one. Once you accumulate three years, you're eligible for arbitration. Once you accumulate six years, you're eligible to file for free agency and get the big number. Now, what is a year of service? 172 days on a Major League roster constitutes a year of service. If you're on the roster the entire year, you get 186 days, but you only need 172 to constitute a full year. So when spring training broke in 2015, Chris Bryant was ready to be called to the big leagues. He was ready to step into the lineup. He was ready to do all the things you saw him do, yet they kept him out till April 16th. That's why. Because they were manipulating his eligibility to march toward free agency. And wouldn't you know it, when they call him up on April 16th, that would mean the most he could accumulate in 2015 were 171 days, which is exactly what he did. He missed his year of eligibility marked on the calendar by one day. You tell me if you think that's fair. The players know this, which adds to the lack of trust. The third reason they didn't get a deal Monday night heading into Tuesday was because I'm told that the players' union never really appreciated that the owners would impose an artificial deadline of February 28th. Well, the, you know, they'll fall back on the fact that they want to have at least a four-week spring training because the first games were scheduled for March 31st, and if they had the deal, it would take three or four days for teams to mobilize to get into camp. And people say, well, couldn't they do it in three weeks? Couldn't they do it in two? No, they really can't. And by the way, back in 2020 during the COVID year when that was a debacle also, you had a situation where you had a shortened spring training, you had an inordinate number of pitchers who got hurt, and people 
liken that to there was a causal effect between the shortened spring training and pitchers getting hurt. So the owner said, the league says you can't have it both ways. You know, we're not going to shorten spring training, so you can blame us if you get hurt. So they need four weeks. But the, the, the players never really appreciated that this deadline was looming the whole time. It just—it didn't sit well with him. It came out afterward. It just cast a pall over the meetings. The fourth reason is, and I tweeted this out Tuesday. When you go back to last Monday's talks, I'll always wonder what would have happened had the players' union agreed to the 14-team playoff. Now, there are serious pros and cons, and I'm going to get to those in a second. But... The owners, it turns out, really wanted that 14-team playoff. And had the players acquiesced, who knows? They might have kept negotiating and gotten some semblance of a deal, even though you still got to take it back to the owners, and 23 out of 30 have to ratify it. By the way, only nine owners remade from 1994. I understand this group is even more hard-ass, so there's never any guarantees. And by the way, there's plenty of players that are very much against the 14-team playoff, and I'm going to get to why in a minute. But it also turns out that the owners had an agreement in principle with ESPN for the postseason playoffs that meant 14 teams. And if it's reduced to 12, which was there, there was a proviso in the contract, then there, there, the, the, the revenues that the owners would realize from that TV deal would be about 20% less. So there's that. So they've they've got a little bit, of, I wouldn't say they got egg on their face, but this is a this is a wrinkle. And another wrinkle, by the way, it's my understanding that the players, when all is said and done, they're going to negotiate hard to have their pay restored for any of the games that the owners canceled. They want to be paid for a full 162 games, especially if they agree to a 14-team playoff. So those are the four reasons. They waited 90 days. The deadline hanging over the union's head was bad. They got up and left the table before a deal was done, which is the opposite of what they did in 1990. And now the elephant in the room, which has been the CBT and the 14-team playoff, are now conveniently joined at the hip as the top negotiators from both sides will convene later today, and those will be the hot topics. Coming up, I'm going to take you behind the scenes on what those hot topics represent and some of the parameters both sides are looking for. I'm Bernie Fratto coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio Studios. Keep it locked right here. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday on Fox Sports Radio. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. Hey, I'm Doug Gottlieb. The podcast is called All Ball. We usually talk all basketball all the time, but it's more about the stories about what made these people love their sport and all the interesting interactions along the way. We talk to coaches. We talk to players. We tell you stories. You download it. You listen to it. I think you'll like it. Listen to All Ball with Doug Gottlieb on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now we're back on Fox Sports Sunday, Fox Sports Radio. I'm Bernie Fratto coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. Take you up to 3 a.m. Pacific, 6 a.m. Eastern. Man, we're just getting started. We got a ton of stuff for you. All right, let's circle back. As I mentioned a minute ago, the CBT, the competitive balance tax, luxury tax, and the threshold that the players would like 
which is much higher what the owners have been offering, which I'll get to in a minute. It is now uh, joined at the hip with the 14-team playoff that the owners want so badly. So the players got smart, and they said, why don't we uh, why don't we revisit this and see what we can do uh, that, uh, you know, why, why don't we see if we can rekindle the negotiations? Um, I would just say that this is a this is a subject matter that it's going to get both sides ears up. But let me start with the with the uh, uh, the uh, fourteen team playoff first. I'm sorry. Here's where I'm going with that. There are real pros and cons. Players don't want it for multiple reasons. One of the things you're going to start to hear is this ghost game concept. Max Scherzer said, all right, I'll tell you what. If you're going to diminish winning your division and uh, you're going to be stuck with all these extra playoff teams, let's give us a ghost game. A ghost game translates to if you are in a three-game series in the first round, or excuse me, a five-game series in the first round, then the bottom line is you start with a 1-0 lead. So, you know, let's say you're, you're, you're the Dodgers and you don't win your division or you don't get a bye, but you could play the Washington Nationals in the first round. I'm just throwing that out there. You start with a 1-0 lead. The owners are just not going to agree to that. No one even liked the ghost runner on second base. Now you want to give a ghost game. And basically what Max Scherzer did was copy what they've done in the Korean Baseball League since 2015. But here's the problem, the fundamental problem. There are 10 teams in the Korean Baseball League. Five teams make the playoffs. They went with this ghost win because they have a balanced schedule, meaning that if you win your division, you had to play every team the equal amount of number of times. The Yankees didn't win their division last year. The White Sox did, but guess what? The Yankees, the Yankees played 96 games with teams who finished above 500, whereas the White Sox only played 56. Now, so it's you don't have a balanced schedule. That's a problem for the for the uh, players' union very much. Secondly, they did some math that it turns out in the last 10 years under that format, six teams would have made the playoffs even though they finished under 500. And they did the math, and it looks like, well, you're only going to have to win 82, 83 games maybe to make a 14-team playoff. So they feel it's diluted, but there's one other thing they're not talking about. They also believe it will be an indirect drag on salaries. Why? Uh, because let's say you're, uh, you're Brian Finley and you own the Tampa Bay Rays. You got a hell of a roster, and you say you look at this roster and say, "Hell, we can win 83 games. We can get into the playoffs. You can get into the dance. Anything can happen. Home field advantage doesn't mean that much in the baseball playoffs." So, are you that much more motivated to bolster your roster with additional expensive free agents? Maybe not, and it could provide a further drag on salary. So, there's going to be some real give and take here. On the other hand, I think the owners are dangling the carrot that if you agree to the 14-team playoff. And the owners can resume and consummate their deal with ESPN, their TV, their lucrative $100 million TV deal, which is predicated on 14 teams, and they go back and they get that. So if that were to happen, right now, the CBT thresholds over the next five years is offered by the Major League ba- uh, is offered by the owners is 220 for the first three years. It's, it was 210 last year. That's so it's flat for three years, and it jumps to 224 and 230 years four and five the players association has asked for 238 the first year so there's an 18k delta with a graduated scale of 244 250 all the way up to 263 near five 
So there's right now a $33,000 per team per year delta in year five and a $19,000 gap in year one. That, that's a lot. And let me give you some additional perspective. Year five in Major League Baseball's quote-unquote best and final offer last Monday, the max threshold that the owners were offering over the five-year period was 230000 That's less than the players are asking for in 2023. So, or ne- next year, this year. They're asking for 238 this year, and in year five, the owners are only offering 230. So they're very far apart in that. Make no mistake. The pre-arbitration bonus pool. Now, this is a pool that the union has asked for. They want the owners to set aside money so that to take care of the zero to three players, which is what the union's mission has said it was all along, to get the younger guys paid sooner, put $120 million in that pool, have it affect up to 150 players. So if a rookie Bull Benson or Chris Perfect go out and hit 40 home runs, drive in 120, their team gets to the playoffs, but they're making the minimum salary, they could get a million-dollar bonus or, or thereabouts. The owners say, yeah, we'll agree to that concept. We'll give you $10 million. Maybe it'll uh, affect 30 players. Come on, that's not negotiating. Well, the owners eventually got up to 30 million, and the players dropped their request to 85 million. So at one point, you had a $100 million gap, and now it's a $50 million gap, 55. So they're not far. Now, the players I'd be careful with on that. You want some advice? Don't fight too hard on that one just yet. It's found money. It's brand new. Frankly, the owners didn't have to do anything there. But you got to found $30 million. Maybe you get that up a little bit. But you really want to focus on the CBT and hear the Bulls on the 14-team playoffs. I haven't made up my mind if I like it or not, although I do think it could make September baseball that much more interesting. And the numbers have proven it, and the TV ratings have proven it. When more teams are eligible to make the playoffs and you get into September, there's more meaningful games. The final thing, and this was a win for the players, they wanted the minimum salary to jump to 775 k a year. Last year it was 575 Before Monday... The owners checked that the players had dropped their demand to 725, and the owners came up to 675. But wouldn't you know it? The owners right at the end offered 700,000. That's a nice jump. That's a win. I think you take that win. All of a sudden, the average rookie now makes 700 grand a year. But they're far apart in the CBT, and they're very far apart in the pre-arb. And the owners and players, actually some even owners, are divided on a 14-team playoff. And many owners are divided on what the amount for the CBT should be. So this could open up a whole new can of worms. And at least if they're talking. And they have bargaining chips to throw at each other back and forth. We got a shot. You want my prediction? All right, I'll blurt it out since no one else wants to. Yeah, I hear guys saying, oh, I'm still holding out. hope we have baseball on Jackie Robinson Day. And it would be a shame. April 15th. Uh, 75-year anniversary of the great Jackie Robinson. Do I think we're going to have baseball that day? No, I don't. Do I think we're going to have baseball in May? No, I don't. But I do think we'll have it. Check that again. Do I think we'll have baseball in April? No, I don't. But do I think we'll have it in May? Yes, I will. We're going to touch about this and a lot more. And You can follow me on Twitter for the updates. Because starting tomorrow, I'll have them again. I'll be plugged in. They are talking face-to-face tomorrow. Coming up, let's bring in the crew. I brought up the subject in November, and I asked everybody, you think they're going to get a deal? In time, or is it going to be like 94 where they're just peeing on each other's shoes? And my opinion has been, my position has been the same. Nope. And now the deal is coming gone. I think Brian Finley agreed with me. There's too much angst. Uh, Some of the other guys thought maybe cooler heads could prevail. Let's, Let's get their thoughts. We all got sports fans on this show. But first, 
Let's go to the aforementioned Silver Tongue Devil, Brian Finley, with the latest. Thank you, Bernie. From peeing on shoes to LeBron James That's peeving right, Warrior fans with 56 points last night as L.A. takes it to Golden State 124-116. to 116. The Timberwolves squelched the Trailblazers 135-121. to 121. Carl Anthony Towns mustering up 36 points and 15 rebounds. The Grizzlies hunt down the Magic 124-96. to 96. And Memphis got themselves into second place in the Western Conference with this win and another loss from Golden State. So everybody's looking up to the Phoenix Suns, though, in the West. The Heat are closing in on the potential top spot in the East. They are right there. They've won 11 out of their last 13 games thanks to a 99-82 victory over the Sixers. So Miami's in second in the East. The Mavericks are in the top eight in the West. They were down 19 points and without Luka Doncic and still navigated past the Kings 114 to 113. In college basketball, in front of a sold-out Poly Pavilion, number 17 UCLA holding off number 16 USC 75 to 68. So Mick Cronin picks up his first win in six tries as a Bruin coach up against the Trojans. And this Trojans team had 15 turnovers in this game that led to 20 21 points, and the Bruins had just one turnover for the whole game. North Carolina wins against number four Duke 94 to 81 in Coach Krzyzewski's final game at Cameron Indoor. Third ranked Baylor has the final say against Iowa State 75 to 68. James Akinjo 20 points and the Bears have a share of the Big 12 regular season title. Number two Arizona wins the Pac-12 regular season title after they demoralized Cal 89 to 61. Sixth ranked Kansas holding off number 21 Texas 70 to 63. That one lingered on into overtime, and David McCormick made the most of his outing with 22 points, along with ripping down 10 rebounds. A win for number seven, Kentucky, as they paced Florida 71 to 63. And how about number eight, Purdue? They climb out of a two game losing streak and fend off Indiana 69 to 67. Sasha Stefanovic hit that go ahead three pointer in the final moments. And at the PGA Tour, Arnold Palmer Invitational. It is Taylor Gooch and Billy Horschel leading the field with one round to play. They are seven under overall. With that, let's get it back to a man in Las Vegas where there are many golf courses in his territory. It's Bernie Frado. And Brian, uh, speaking of urinating, <laughs> I will tell you before I turn it over to the crew that I will be one of the first slappies back in the ballpark. I don't live in a major league city anymore, but I make my trek to Detroit. I've still got my credential. I'll get to a Dodger game. I'll get to an Angel game. It's in my blood. I'm not missing it. And I was telling Jason Martin and Arnie Spanier a couple hours ago, I said, you know, I remember the good old days of walking into the old Yankee Stadium or the old Tiger Stadium, greeted by the scent of urine and (laughs) cigar smoke and burnt hot dogs. And I will tell you, I miss it. It conjures up great memories. So let's keep it right here. Let's start with you, Brian. What's your overall take without overthinking it? about this whole debacle, this saga that they're calling the Major League Baseball lockout and negotiation. Bernie, at this point, we can't be surprised. Are we disappointed as fans? Of course. We wanted a solution by now. We wanted a full 162 games, and it goes back to something that nobody's talking about. Clearly, the sides can't figure things out from a financial perspective. 
But I'm thinking about the ushers. I'm thinking about those who are cooking the food, those who are working in the parking lots here that are missing out on cash for their families that they need to make a living. And so we have all of these big-time millionaires talking about money and wanting more, and then we forget about those who are part of this operation that are getting forgotten. And I go back to those employees at the ballpark, anyone associated with Major League Baseball just trying to feed a family and how they are at a disadvantage right now and how they should be getting more of the story as opposed to it just seems like greediness, Bernie, on both sides. Uh, Brian, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, believe it or not, the Major League Players Union started a $1 million fund to support all the workers that are going to be impacted by the canceled games. So now the league has also followed suit. They'll be setting up a fund for, quote, impacted workers. And, uh, you know, the union will administer it. And uh, they I do think they understand the, the financial hardship, and it's probably a PR ploy. But I'm glad. And I don't think a million's enough. It might it's probably be a million per team. Uh, so it, I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, uh, because that's an aspect to this that's unfortunate. And one of the thoughts on my mind is all the families I feel bad for that plan vacations to spring training hot weather sites in Arizona and Florida and plan their vacation around a spring training game. Those economic, uh, those communities uh, are going to feel the economic pinch of that as well as uh, you're going to have a spring training, but it's going to be delayed spring training. It might not be uh, quite the same. Thank you, Brian, for your input there. Uh, Chris Perfett, your thoughts. I think at this point, Bernie, I think the owners kind of made a really grave miscalculation. I remember seeing them during the week where we were getting reports that a deal was very close. And then it just turned out that, you know, uh, according to the PA, they were never close, that it was just right. bad information kind of being fed. And I think at that point, Propaganda. That's, yeah, yep. I think that's where it really turned. I mean, I was always of the opinion that the, what the players were asking for wasn't really that um, hard to meet, but this idea that you would just like randomly try to tell people that they were close and hoping that it would, you know, force it close. It's just it's showing once again what a weak commissioner Rob Manfred is. He's just <laughs> this this whole thing has just been a massive debacle across the board, and it just lies at his feet and lies at and you know I I've seen reporters who were very who, who are more than happy to you know, deliver these lines for the players who are now, like, acting with hurt because they were completely misled and they misled people in turn. And I think that's something that is now, uh, if nothing else, usually during these kind of labor negotiations, Bernie, people go after the players first because the millionaires are definitely more accessible than the billionaires. They're the faces of the sport. That it's, you know, the quote-unquote, you're playing a, a, a kid's game. Why are you bickering about money? They're usually the quick, easy targets, and play, uh, owners know that because nobody knows really. A lot of fans don't know the difference between a strike and a lockout, and who initiates it. True. But in this case, what the owners did, I think they burned a lot of their cachet to try to convince fans that the players are at fault, and I think they're they're the ones who like their gambit has backfired. So we'll see what happens. It's starting to, yeah. It, it's starting to turn, and I just I don't usually see that happen in labor negotiations in sports. Let me unpack that before I get to bull real quick. So in the 1994 strike, the New York Times did a poll. 80% of the people, respondents, were on the side of the owners. An informal poll was done last week, 60% currently on the side of the players. And you mentioned the owners miscalculating. They might have. There are 21 new owners that are in the game now that weren't there in 94. 
and you one must never underestimate the solidarity and and, and how tough and tight and together this Major League Baseball Players Association is. They are the real deal. They are the strongest union anywhere. I really believe that. All right, let's go to Bo Benson now. Bo, I saved you for last because you actually have a baseball podcast with Ryan Bershinger called Swing Shift. Have you guys talked about this on your podcast? Yeah, I mean, uh, as much as you can. Um, I think the enduring image from last week is Rob Manfred announcing, you know, the games would be canceled and all that stuff. And, you know, he was asked, they locked the players out something like 90 days ago. Why did they take so long to uh, start actually negotiating? And he just didn't have an answer. No. Uh, it's entirely, they didn't need to lock anybody out. Like, that's the that's the thing I always go back to is there was no reason for them to lock anybody well, out. Well, there, there was a reason whether we agree with it or not. They, they could have, you know. Because they didn't want to run the risk of negotiating in good faith and the players walk off the field in the middle of the season yeah. like they did in 94. But sure. continue on. But they 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 hit the nuclear option and then sat on sat on their uh sat on their hands for 3 months and then pretended that they were going to come and work out a deal and and get baseball to everybody and I thought it was so obvious um everybody got all excited that the lockout was going to end because they agreed on a playoff proposal. And then John Heyman tweets that, you know, they still got to talk about the CBT and the luxury tax and and uh, payroll oh, and everything like things. that. Like, yeah, everything that they actually hate each other about, they have to discuss that. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I think I agree with Chris. I, I do think that public opinion is starting to sway. You still have some people uh, that don't really understand what's going on. So they initially, you know, the, the public face is the players. So they lash out and blame them. But I do think... Uh, it, and it's just, I think they're the new generation of owners you were talking about. It's a lot of Wall Street investment guys mm -hmm. that don't really understand what it is that baseball represents in this country. They're, they've been, a lot of those guys on Wall Street, very anti-union. Their idea of labor negotiations is to just not negotiate with unions. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of what ownership is trying to do is just break the players for fun. And they don't really know what to do that, since they're not doing it. Right, that's true. And they've been trying that for 30 years, and it hasn't worked. And we'll get to this maybe a little bit more later in the show. And one of the things that's unfortunate, I always believe, even though no one will admit it publicly, that it was part of the owner's playbook to cancel games in April uh, because they believed that that would actually help them in the court of public opinion somewhat. And in a sense, you have to watch it because the – players are still perceived in some factions as, as greedy, too, as well. It's really an odd, crazy dynamic. We'll get to it a little later. All right. Coming up, we're going to bring you back out to Las Vegas. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. Mackenzie River, Mackenzie Rivers, Mackinac Sports. And believe it or not, you know, one of the big betting things or one of the big uh, events you can bet on, certainly here in Vegas, is the NFL Draft. So stocks are rising on certain players, and McKenzie will have that for us. Keep it locked. I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday and Fox Sports Radio. Right, we're back on Fox Sports Sunday and Fox Sports Radio. I'm Bernie Fratto. Coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. Again, we'll take you up to 3 a.m. Pacific, 6 a.m. Eastern at this time. Let's bring it back out to Las Vegas. Welcome them back in. You know him, you love him. You can't live without him. Mackinac Sports with McKenzie Rivers. And McKenzie, 
Not too far off, not too early to start talking about uh, the NFL draft or the draft <laughs> and, uh, and the, the draft. Uh, odds. Yes, the draft. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. And the <laughs> odds uh, of such. And uh, for the first time in five years, in uh, seven of the last eight years, there will not be a quarterback drafted first overall. But that doesn't mean you can't find action on quarterbacks. Yes, we saw some combine news come across the wire. And sorry, Kenny Pickett, you're going to have to have something else to do with your life because you're not going to be an NFL quarterback, at least according to some measuring eight and a half inch hands. That's the smallest since Michael Vick. Malik Willis has, you know, nine and a half inch hands, good enough for an NFL quarterback, and his odds have surged. They were both plus 150 come Wednesday. After all the combine stuff has been settled, Malik Willis now minus 170, about a 65% chance to be your next quarterback drafted. By the way, after him, it's Kenny Pickett, 2-1. to one. Sam Howell, remember, we, we, I talked to you uh, on, in September before the college football yeah, season had even really kicked off. Yeah. And Sam Howell was the favorite, followed by Spe- um, Spencer Rattler who, by the way, isn't oh, even goodness, going yes. into the draft. He is actually just transferred to South Carolina, but he, hey, he says he, he loves it out there. Here's, here's where I'm going with this. If you select a quarterback, and people are talking about the Lions at two, potentially selecting Malik Willis, I think it's buyer beware, because every single name on the top of this quarterback list had a disappointing season. Spencer Radler was the favorite to go number one, not even going into the draft. Sam Howell, he was plus 350. Now he's 11-1. Malik Willis, he was plus 750 to be the number one, not just quarterback, but any player selected. Now he's 30-1. to So if you're trading up or if you're using a high-round draft pick, you're using something, You're using it on a guy that was considerably less valuated by the market coming into the season. Therefore, if he was a second-rounder, Malik Willis, a round second-rounder projected, I think he's got to be stocked down because everybody's stocked down. And if you're looking for a quarterback, I think you can do well to save your assets and not spend too much in this draft. I'm in agreement. And I actually think the first overall player picked will be Evan Neal, the offensive tackle out of Alabama. He's actually a favorite now. I think he's minus 115, McKenzie. And real quickly, I'll turn it back over to you. The Lions, would if they draft a quarterback, they are first in line for a frontal lobotomy because you're going to have both Aiden (laughs) Hutchinson and Kevin Thibodeau sitting right there in the number two slot. They need defense. Go ahead. Yes, and Aiden Hutchinson, by the way, was second favorite to be number one selected behind Evan Neal. As early as yesterday, as soon as recently as yesterday, there's been a huge line move. So this is what happened. Ikem Ikanwu out of North Carolina State was six to one on Tuesday to be the first overall selection. Tuesday afternoon, Mel Kiper produces uh, yet another version of his mock draft. Boom, Akanyo, number one. Whether he has intel or he's just reading the tea leaves, he says Akanyo going to be the number one selected Tuesday when he was 6-1. to one. Come Friday's mm-hmm. plus 350. Today, you can't get a plus 350. Believe me, I looked. Best you can get is plus 250, 225 consensus. It's. I talked to my draft guy. He put it like this. Dan Rivera, you might know him. Oh, yeah, Dan's good heavy, guy. Yeah, heavy hey, into the quickly. draft. He says it's 50-50. It's going to be Neal or yeah, it's going to be a Conwu. The Jaguars take an offensive tackle. You can still get plus 225 for a 50-50 scenario. That's my best bet. Real quickly, 
How many times did Trevor Lawrence get sacked last year? 478? You put in the stud <laughs> like Evan Neal. You've got to protect this asset in Trevor Lawrence. Go ahead. This is this is much we know. The Jacksonville Jaguars, I'm confident, barring a trade, will take an offensive tackle. It looks like they're just tr- deciding between Evan Neal out of Alabama or Ikemi Kanwu out of North Carolina State. Real good stuff, McKenzie. We'll have you back in an hour. You were 2-1 and one in your NBA picks last year. You have three best bets for Sunday's NFL slate. Or check that NBA slate, and we'll dive right into it. Coming up, a lot of names in the news this week. Names are of prominent people that have storylines around them. Keep it locked right here. This is Bernie Fratto. I'm on Fox Sports Sunday, Fox Sports Radio. The Fox Sports Sunday train keeps rolling right along. I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. We'll take you up to 3 a.m. Pacific, 6 a.m. Eastern. Joined, of course, by my savvy crew, Bull Benson, Brian Finley, and Chris Perfett. Still a ton to get to. And uh, I'm going to reintroduce a segment that I did many years in Michigan when I had my own show, The View from the Cheap Seats, and among other things inside the Fratto House, and it's called Names in the News because every there, there's not a week that doesn't go by where somebody's name makes the news. Sometimes they make it every week. But there's also usually a very good reason, and it could be fairly sensationalized news. It could be very serious news. Uh, it could be an announcement, or it could just simply be an ongoing soap opera saga like Aaron Rodgers. Now, last year I was pretty adamant that I thought he was coming back. This year I've kind of avoided him because his 15 minutes are up. I don't dislike Aaron Rodgers, but I don't care. You have nothing to say anymore. I will say this, though. He was in California today. He's a busy guy. His left tackle, David Bakhtiari, got married. And who was the efficient? Aaron Rodgers. Can you imagine that? Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, that, the visual of that just uh, throws me uh, for, a, for a little bit. But be that as it may, you got to do something in the offseason, right? As he's now teased that Tuesday. Tuesday will be the day that Aaron Rodgers lets the world know whether or not he'll be back in Green Bay next year, which I, I struggle to grasp the ideology behind this anyway, because he can either retire or he can ask for a trade, which they may or may not accommodate. It seems like they're bending over backwards to provide him, you know, from with coaches to – well, you get the picture. They're, 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 the relationship, even by Aaron Rodgers' own omission, is more amenable this year. But Tuesday, there's another event that will affect Rodgers, and that – I think it's the deadline that the Packers have – to franchise tag Devontae Adams, which it would not be a good event if Rodgers was back and Devontae Adams was not. Or Devontae Adams was not, and how would that affect Rodgers' decision? So we're supposed to know Tuesday, okay? But here's here's the thing. Back on February 10th, so that was, what, three and a half weeks ago, Aaron Rodgers said, quote, he will just enjoy the next couple of weeks then do some quick contemplating, and then make a decision pretty quick. Well, I don't know what the hell your concept of pretty quick is, but I think it differs from the most of the rest of us. Three and a half weeks, 23 days later, uh, whatever the case may be, the decision has not exactly been as quick as advertised and might be a little more difficult even than Rogers expected because according to the NFL Network, we are now hearing that 
Aaron Rodgers is, quote, truly torn on where he wants to play next season, and he's going back and forth on what he wants. What the hell is it that you want? He never counted another man's money, but he's made $260 million in his career, and I think the Packers are about to comply and make him a very highly paid player. So what is it you want? Fresh ground pepper? You want to live in a new scenery? I don't know. Why don't you tell us what you want? Is it possible that, you know, again, what could what could end up being a very complicating factor is just not whether to leave Green Bay, but which destination would fit him best if he did, because it's all about him. But he also said he would, quote, make his decision pretty quick. So now we come to find out that Rodgers, he's been a busybody. He's lined up three possible next teams. The Broncos, what a shock. How many times have you heard that? <clears throat> would the Packers trade him to the Broncos? I do think they'd listen to offers. They have to because the Broncos have a lot of draft capital. And even though they've won 40 regular season games with Aaron Rodgers in three years, which is the most of any three-year run without winning a Super Bowl, they've got a hell of a combination with him and Matt LaFleur. They haven't won the Super Bowl. And he hasn't won it in 10 years. And it, it, at some point, it just feel a little uncomfortable. But who gives you the best chance to get back to the Super Bowl? And do you really want to rebuild? The second team is the Titans. Now, that would be fun to watch. You put Aaron Rodgers on that team. I like the cut of the jib. Mike Vrabel and company. I'm not down on Ryan Tannehill, but, boy, he sure stunk it up. That poor guy that day against Cincinnati and took their number one seed that they worked for all year and kicked it right out the window. And then there's the Steelers. And, yeah, I know Rodgers and Mike Tomlin were making googly eyes a while back, and they said don't read anything into it. But any one of those, there's real uncertainty about the details. So it's speculative. And would I make a prediction or a guess? No. I still think he's going to be back. Now, the Packers have not engaged in any trade scenarios with Rodgers. And they, again, they're awaiting his decision when he wants to return to Green Bay. It would be his 13th season. So Rodgers has to do some final soul searching. Does he want to follow Peyton Manning and link up late in his career with John Elway? Does he want to replace Ryan Tannehill and be part of the Titans offense, which is potentially very potent? Or does he want to take over for Ben Roethlisberger? And that's a team, again, that was in the playoffs. They could be ready to win sooner than you think if Aaron Rodgers was under center. Or do you just simply want to return to the team where you actually have won the Super Bowl, but only won, and reportedly you've had a hot and cold relationship with the front office. Tuesday can't come quick enough. Make a call, Aaron. My prediction, my guess, he'll stay. All right. <clears throat> this news broke earlier, and it's odd and unsettling because we are coming to find out that Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who plays for the Phoenix Mercury, as is the case with a lot of WNBA stars, they play in Russia when the season ends. And she's actually being held, and she was arrested on February 5th. And we I, we didn't find out about this till March 4th? Why? What, what, what are we missing here? And the report I was able to obtain said she was arrested on drug smuggling charges that could be facing five to ten years in prison per a Russian news outlet. Now, it's my understanding what she had was were vaping paraphernalia in her suitcase. Meanwhile, again, you, why was she in Russia? Well, she spends the offseason, Griner spends the offseason playing in the EuroLeague, and she was heading uh, to Moscow from New York last month, and officials found vape cartridges 
in her luggage. And those are illegal in Russia, apparently. And somehow a drug-sniffing dog found cannabis, oil, or weed, or I, I don't know. I, I'm, this is all alleged with respect to what actually was found. And then they managed to identify her as a WNBA player. And there's no indication that she's been released. Again, she was arrested in February. This is March. We're just finding out about it. So it turns out she hasn't posted on Instagram since February 5th, which is very concerning in itself. The Phoenix Mercury, uh, the team she plays for here in the U.S., where she makes three hundred grand a year. By the way, she makes a million, I think, playing in Russia. They haven't commented on the situation, but it's got to be very scary for Brittany Griner. You don't have the you don't have your rights when you're in a foreign country and you're in custody. And you know, Griner has just been playing in the offseason in Russia for a team called Katerinburg for the last six years. She's never had an issue. But the Russian officials released a statement, and I'll read it to you. Quote, as a U.S. citizen was passing through the Green Channel at Cherry Matavio Airport, upon arriving in New York, a working dog from the Cherry Matavio Customs Canine Department detected the possible presence of narcotic substances in the accompanying luggage. The Russian Federal Customs Service said in a statement, the customs inspection of the hand luggage being carried by the U.S. citizen, confirmed the presence of vapes with specifically smelling liquid, and an expert determined that the liquid was cannabis oil, hash oil, which is a narcotic substance. This is their statement, end quote. As you recall, Griner was a star at Baylor, and she's been in the NBA for many, many years and a very high-profile name in the league. Given the world event that's taking place in Ukraine, it just seems to add to the lunacy. And I think some people are deserving of answers, especially since a month has gone by and folks that are in the dark don't deserve to be in the dark. So I am hopeful that situation works out well for, for Brittany Griner. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. Finally, the last name in the news, uh, Kenny Pickett, your favorite quarterback in mine because he's got hands the size of ours. Are you kidding me? Okay. Don't, don't people remember that Kenny was the star of the Uncle Rico quarterback camp back in the day? You remember Uncle Rico. Dude could throw a ball a quarter mile, man. Could have won the state championship back in 82. And If I were Kenny Pickett, when I show up at the draft, I'd wear a Vote for Pedro t-shirt, but that's just me. And if you didn't see Napoleon Dynamite, shame on you. John Heater was a ama- That movie is, is, is educational TV. It's wonderful. Go back and watch it. Back to Kenny Pickett. A lot of the pre-draft discussion around Pittsburgh quarterback, a... a who I think is still going to get drafted in the first round, by the way, okay? Consensus top two passer in the 2022 class. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, keep in mind that uh, this quarterback class is nowhere near last year when you had Trey Lance and Mac Jones and, and of course, uh, uh, Trevor Lawrence and right on down the line. There were, there were a lot of talented quarterbacks and, uh, you know, uh, Justin Fields, some did better than others, but they were very highly projected coming out of college. I think, still think you could see two or three quarterbacks in the first round, but the, that's not the buzz this year. You're not going to have a quarterback drafted first overall. So what happens is this always happens in the underwear Olympics that I call the combine the underwear Olympics because sometimes it gets to be a bit much. Uh, what's the conversation? Not not all of the good things he does, but about his hand size because each year the quarterback prospects – have their hands measured, 
and 9-inch measurements are generally considered adequate for the NFL. Pickett, however, logged just an 8.5-inch measurement at the, scouting, at the scouting combine, putting him in historic company. You see, it's interesting because out of 663 quarterback draft prospects who've had their hands measured in the last 35 years, only nine had smaller hands than Pickett, who also apparently has a double-jointed thumb. So there's that. I don't know how that helps you read a defense or make your read progressions or move the chains on third down or score in the red zone. But actually, Pickett did all those things. And I listen, you listen to Dave Wanstead talk about him. He knows a thing or two about football. He's the most pro-ready. And he played in a cold-weather city. And he played in a, he's already played in a professional stadium for his college career. But eight and a half inches will be like the new running joke until the draft is here. Now, Joe Burrow, he his hands last year measured exactly nine inches. And, of course, you see Burrow, he's terrible, right? Killed him. What did he, what he end up doing this year? Look, still, I will tell you, Kenny Pickett is still going to be drafted in the first round. And um, I, I know that the hand size issue will be a topic. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do for the fun of it, because I covered the National Football League for many, many years, Lions pre- and post-game show in Detroit from 98 to 2008. Love the game, love to look at film, all that stuff. And the truth of the matter is, scouts really do care about the size of hands. And there are benefits of a quarterback having large hands. I will tell you how hand size is actually measured in the NFL and how coaches actually value hand size. Yeah, why not do it? If I'm going to make a joke about it, you're going to be hearing about it. Hopefully the information I share with you will allow you to hear these perspectives uh, with a little different prism. But first, I want to bring in the crew. Because speaking of quarterbacks and speaking of Hand size, he's going to need big hands to hold on to this contract. Troy Aikman's about to get a five-year, $90 million deal and jump to ESPN. Amazon's in the game now. Looks like people are going to be fighting over Joe Buck. They're going to be fighting over uh, Al Michaels, and they're going to have their choice as to who they want to work with side by side. How did all this happen? I want to bring in the crew because let's unpack the age-old question. To what degree, if you're going to watch a sporting event, is it because of the announcer, or is that a myth? I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studio. Stick and stay. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday on Fox Sports Radio. All right, we're back on Fox Sports Sunday, Fox Sports Radio. I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las, uh, the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. We roll right on. In a second, I'm going to bring in the crew because uh, it really caught my eye, Troy Aikman. Five years, $90 million. He'll be jumping to ESPN, it appears. This is not just a big deal. It basically obliterates the existing salary scale for ESPN. Uh, the New York Post reported, based on the money he's going to make, I, I think he would be the highest paid on-air employee at ESPN by over $6 million. That's incredible. So talk about a lap in the field. And not for nothing, Al, Al Michaels, at 77 years young, he finds himself in an incredible position because he's at the top of his game as a play caller, and there are there's more jobs available now because starting next season, Amazon 
will now be airing 15 Thursday night football games a year through the 2032 season via Prime Video. Wow. Spring in the crew. Brian Finley, uh, look, I know you were friends with Dick Enberg. We both know the power of an announcer in any game, but to what degree do you watch games just because of the announcer? You know, that's a great point, Bernie. I think that you should view announcers like sports fans should view referees. You know a referee is doing a good job when you don't say anything and when you're not complaining. So when you're saying nothing, that means you're having an enjoyable experience and things are going well, just like how listeners and viewers should feel when they're enjoying the broadcast. But when referees are being, you know, punished or they're being called out or criticized and they're, you know, they're they're on your nerves, then you know you're not liking the experience. Essentially, Bernie, what I'm trying to say here is that an announcer it should be like a referee. You know you're doing a good job when nothing you can tell is standing in the way, and then you know you're not doing a great job when you have something to say and it's just getting in the way and it's interfering your experience. Well, and, and you're not wrong. That was always Vince Scully's thing. Let let the game tell the story at the end of the game, the crowd. You don't want to overstep your bounds. I do think you have to be a keen observer. You have to bring value add to the folks tuning into the game. Part journalism, part humor, part entertainer. Uh, there is something to that. But, you, but uh, to your point, I think what you're trying to say is, you can go too far. You're not the game. You're just part of the game in the same way a referee who's doing a bad job can turn off or screw up a game. Uh, Chris Perfett, your thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, I don't – I'm not I, – I, I like certain broadcasters for sure, but I don't think it's ever turned me on to or off of a game. When I want to watch a game, I want to watch a game. I think um, it's fascinating kind of watching the gold rush for – some of these guys right now, I think there's definitely been a rise in certain celebrity among certain broadcasters. I definitely know. Look, look, look you know. at Tony Romo. Yeah, Tony, I was, I was going to say he Tony Romo. T- and then yes. Joe Buck and Troy Aikman were kind of the power duo for a very long time. Um, everyone kind of knew who they were. It, I, I don't think it really conferred you being in movies. Like, you know, I remember way back there was like a Bruce Willis movie with um, – was it Vern Lundquist and uh, Lynn Swan and um, Dick Buckus? Oh, yeah, The Last Cowboy. That's what it was. I mean, The Last Boy Scout. Yeah, The Last Boy Scout. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, football, the football scene at the start of the movie. But um, there, it, it's definitely something, because I think there's so many people who watch sports in America, it is still a cultural touchstone as far as who calls the games. Everyone knows the name sure. Al Michaels. So I, I get why there's a rush for it. I just don't think... That uh, I mean, I say that now that I don't think it really dictates it, but at the same time, like you can tell when you're getting the B or C crew, and it sure. definitely doesn't have the same the same weight of the game. There's something to be said is you are getting the best crew that our production can throw at you. So I think that's why a lot of the money is being thrown around to these guys. I just don't know that it's for for someone like say Amazon. I don't know if that'll really change things. Like you could probably just. Just go for well. You know, I think if you if they land a now Michaels, it's instant credibility. Sure, sure. But I think I think you know, I think some people, if you're tuning into Amazon, if you could just find really good people to that they would grow up with, you'd capture a whole generation. Of course, the trouble there is Bernie is making sure. Yeah, as you say, like Al Michaels is a known 
is a known quantity. So obviously right. that's a lot easier. Right. And not everybody has Amazon Prime, so you're going to have to go get it and pay for it. But it's not that much. So right. well, that all adds to that's more grist for the mill. Uh, yeah. And I think the other the other question is like I mentioned, I mentioned the B and C crews. It's as we're kind of making these guys into bigger stars. I don't think there's a lot of people behind them that really get elevated up as much as probably should be. There's. The benches are a little shallow sometimes. Very much so. Like Good Mike Tirico being ready to take over for Al Michaels is kind of the the exception, not the rule right now. Mm-hmm. No, you're not wrong. Uh, when Vince Scully moves on, whoever the next person's going to be is a drop-off. Same with Chick Hearn, Ernie Highwell, right on down the line. I mean, just look uh, at how, how it was with Monday Night Football. They were really struggling for a while. I think they still are, quite frankly. So we'll see what this does with Troy Aikman, and, uh, and maybe they can find some rhythm. Uh, Bo Benson, you got the last word on this. What are your thoughts, buddy? Um, I don't seek out certain games just because who's calling them. I do seek out certain games depending on who's producing it. Um, it's awesome that the Rams won the Super Bowl when NBC had it, so I'll, I was actually able to watch the game and uh, be invested in that. But um, it is crazy just how much emphasis is being placed on who's calling these games. Um, I think Brian and Chris were both kind of right. Like, well, Brian, especially like if you know who's calling the game, it means you probably don't like the way they're calling it. Like we all knew how awful it was with ESPN's Monday night football crew the last couple of years. And it was like distracting from the game when you'd have some, uh, some dumb things being said, but, uh, it, the, the salaries these guys are getting and, and the idea, like, you know, you see Sean McVay's name getting thrown out for a hundred million dollars. They tried like hell to get him. Yeah. I, that's crazy. And I can totally see why a guy would consider it. That's a lot of money to sit there and talk for three hours, uh, once a week. But yeah, you know what it's, I wonder, Bo, it's as wild. a side note, he made eight and a half of the Rams last year. I wonder if the Rams are going to tear up his contract. Yes, I, I would imagine that the Rams are going to be giving a few people some more money going into next season. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Sean McVay had – I love the guy. He's a tremendous coach. I just like the way he conducts himself as well. It wouldn't surprise me if he does this three, four more years and then he does the Madden thing. Madden was done by the age of 40. Left after 77 when they won Super Bowl eleven against Minnesota and the rest is history. You might see Sean McVay doing that. And then, you know what? To Brian Finley's point, look, McVay could get behind the mic and stink it up. I don't think I don't think Greg Olson exactly was charming people in their living rooms. And it was very uncomfortable watching him move his hands back and forth. Yeah, I, this is, I, I think ahead, that I think that's exactly what he's planning on doing just because he's already he's still so young and he's already got that Super Bowl. So, yeah, sign. Sign a contract for four or five more years, and then yeah, you you go into a small little semi-retirement, do TV, and then if you want to go back, you're you're still young enough to go back and have uh, some kind of life after you're actually done coaching. Good stuff. All right, coming up, uh, I'm going to give the one word why I believe Troy Aikman could command that much money. I'll tell a little story, and then I promised. What's the big deal about hand size for a quarterback from an NFL? perspective but first let's go to the man who writes the songs that make the young girls cry no it's not Barry Manilow it's Brian Finley with the latest yes and LeBron James quarterbacking the Lakers to a win over the Warriors last night Bernie 56 points for the King in a 124-116 triumph the Timberwolves outfox the Trailblazers 135 to 121 Carl Anthony Towns getting his with 36 points and 15 rebounds John Morant supplying 25 points the Grizzlies 
Grizzlies decked the Magic 124 to 96, and Memphis is now hovering in that two spot in the West, looking up to the Suns, but a half game ahead of the Warriors, who of course lost yesterday. The Heat are winners against the 76ers, 99 to 82, as Miami has won 11 out of their last 13 games. The Mavericks climb out of a 19-point hole, and they do it without Luka Doncic and survive the Kings, 114 to 113. In college basketball, big rivalry matchup at Pauley Pavilion and number 16 UCL or number 16 USC face plants as number 17 UCLA wins at home, 75 to 68. The Trojans 15 turnovers to the Bruins one. And with that win for the Bruins, they are the second overall team in the regular season for the Pac-12. So they go into the tournament, the conference tournament, that is, as the two seed. North Carolina serving some humility to number four Duke, 94 to 81 in Coach K's final game at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Third-ranked Baylor gets a victory against Iowa State, 75 to 68. James Akinjo, 20 points for the Bears who have a, sh- a share of the Big 12 regular season title thanks to that win. Number two, Arizona. Bernie seems to be very high on them, and rightly so. They just won the Pac-12 regular season title, and they just emasculated Cal 89-61. to 61. Sixth-ranked Kansas withstands number 21 Texas, 70-63 to 63 in overtime. A win for number 7 Kentucky as they find a way against Florida, 71-63. to 63. The Wildcats have won four straight down in Gainesville. Eighth-ranked Purdue is a game and a half out of first in the Big Ten, but they do get rid of a two-game losing streak and they ward off Indiana 69 to 67 and finally with one round to go at the PGA Tours Arnold Palmer Invitational we have got a two-way tie for first both at seven under that'd be Taylor Gooch and Billy Horschel so they will be in that final starting group on Sunday later today looking to win that title which is being housed in Orlando Florida the home of that tournament with that let's get it back to our man in Las Vegas Bernie Fratto All right, thanks, Brian. One word why I believe Troy Aikman commanded the contract he did. And if you look at his life uh, the last 30 years, I think heading up to this, this word will make sense. There's a story. I'll draw a parallel, draw an analogy. There were two brothers that were nefarious criminals. They were twin brothers, and they ran roughshod over this small town in the 1800s. And they were terrible people, and they robbed banks and did all sorts of terrible things. And suddenly one of the twin brothers died and the surviving twin took it very hard. And he went to the town preacher who was going to be presiding over the funeral. He said, I need a favor. I will give you a check for $10,000. If you eulogize my brother and tell everybody he was a saint. And the preacher looked at him and said, all right, if the check clears, I'll do it. Sure enough, the check cleared the day of the funeral. Townsfolk came from miles and miles away because this infamous person who was about to be buried, people wanted to see it. This is a very interesting individual who had committed a lot of crimes. So the preacher gets up into the pulpit and there was a giant crowd and he starts to wax philosophical and eulogize the decedent, and he says, 
Here lies so-and-so. He was a terrible person, a bad person, a nefarious man, a miscreant, a criminal. All he did was wreak havoc over this town for many, many years and caused many of you citizens great heartache. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Where am I going with this? When you look at a Troy Aikman, you really get what you're looking at. I think the word I'm referring to is authenticity. He played the game. He won Super Bowls. He had a million concussions. He's honest. He's forthright. He hasn't even, even been afraid to speak the truth about the Cowboys when they deserve to be called out. Authenticity. And I think more than anything people want from an announcer is credibility and authenticity. And I think Troy Aikman has proven he's all that. All right, let's get back to this goofy subject on large hands. Because for the NFL, it's not. So what are the benefits of large hands for a quarterback? Because you hear about height, too. But, you know, quarterbacks like Brett Favre and Drew Brees, they were criticized for their height at the Combine. But there turns out they actually had very big hands. And, you know, Afar was able to play well in, in snowy, bad conditions and because his enormous hands contributed. And bigger hands, according to the scouts, means you can have a better grip on the ball and have more control when you throw it. Remember, when you're in the pocket, you got to control the football at all times. you got to hold on to it when it's crowded, when some, some, somebody's trying to strip you, uh, when you, a pump fake. You have to control it on play-action passes. And you've got to direct it correctly with ease if you're going to throw the ball in high-pressure situations. Big hands give you a slight edge for all of those things. And, and hand measurement, and by the way, did you know how hand measurement is done at the NFL Combine? So if you're, you're curious how big your hands are, you hold your hands out and outstretch it as, hard, as wide as you can like a, like, a, like a starfish. And you measure from the tip of your pinky finger to the tip of your thumb with your hand outstretched, and that'll tell you what size hands you have. Now, you may have big hands. Uh, Jim Druckenmiller had 11 and a half inch hands, uh, biggest ever in the combine. Uh, played six games in the NFL, one touchdown, four interceptions, if you're scoring at home. So, uh, again, I just mentioned how hand size w w was measured, uh, and, and, and the truth of the matter is, is that there, there are actually a lot of players' hands are measured. The largest hand measurement in combine history was, is almost 12 inches by DeForest Buckner and Goster Cherilis. I'll never forget Goster Cherilis. He was an <laughs> he was an offensive lineman drafted by the Rams. No, 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 check that. The Lions. When I was covering the Lions back in 2006, and he ended up having an okay career in the NFL, but nothing to write home about. But he was second-team All-ACC, and he was drafted first round by the Lions, and we were, like, scratching our head. Not to pick on the guy, it just that was a – there was a lot of other talent in that draft, and the Lions chose to go there, and they had a bad year. That was Rod Marinelli's, I think, first year, and it was a bad year, I think, 2-14. And, and we were, you know I, – I know it's probably not funny to people now, but what what is Goster Cherilis? What is it? Is that like one of those commercials on TV? Ask your doctor about Goster Cheerless. You get rid of that rash. But these are your side effects. Uh, stomach cramps, burning eyes, limbs falling off. But ask your doctor about Goster Cheerless. Now, he, he was an okay player. 
I didn't know his hands were that big. I don't even remember. By the way, the average man's walking around is about eight and a half inches, right? So the NFL, you know, they have their ways. They, you know, I would say that the NBA also measures hand length and span and all that kind of stuff. So it's not new. But so Kenny Pickett makes the news for that reason. Now, again, finally, and these are the guys who get paid to do this and win games. So it's not funny to them. Most NFL coaches prefer their quarterbacks to have a hand span of at least nine and a half inches. And they're very hesitant to pick a quarterback with a hand span that measures less than that. Back in the day, Hugh Jackson, uh, who coached for the Browns, is especially particular about hand size and said he prefers those with hand spans of 10 inches or wider. How'd that work out in Cleveland? I'm just curious. And by the way, former Philadelphia Eagles coach Chip Kelly even proposed that quarterbacks didn't thrive because they were tall, but because they had big hands. And how many Super Bowls did Chip Kelly win in Philadelphia? All righty then. Well, between now and April 28th, when the draft starts, you'll have enough minutia to fill the Grand Canyon. And frankly, we, we can't get enough of it. So the NFL is found a way to stay in the news year-round. They're the true hot stove league. So give yourselves a hand if you listen to that entire monologue there. See what I did? Coming up, let's bring you back out to Vegas. You know him, you love him, can't live without him. He's going to give you three NBA best bets for Sunday. Two and one on those best bets last week. I'm talking about Mackenzie Rivers and Mackinac Sports. I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio Studios. Keep it locked right here. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday on Fox Sports Radio. All right, we're back on Fox Sports Sunday, Fox Sports Radio. I'm Bernie Fratto, coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio Studios. Let's bring you back out to Las Vegas. It's that time again. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. Two and one last week in his NBA best bets. He's got three more NBA bets to fire on for Sunday, March 6th. Let's welcome him back. Mackenzie Rivers, Mackinac Sports. What do you got there, buddy? Well, let's start out with a favorite. Let's start out with the acknowledgement that I got three favorites again. Had three favorites last week, went two and one. I got three favorites for you that I think you're going to win on this Sunday's card. 50.5%. Doesn't seem like much, but when you look at two years of NBA data, thousands of games, Favorites are the way to go, and it's real simple. The total has gone up. This is now a make-and-miss league to an extreme degree. That's why the Milwaukee Bucks can be down 15 in five minutes. They hit a couple shots, set their defense up, come back and win, beat the Miami Heat. Could have got them at 56-1 to at one point in the fourth quarter because the NBA algorithms or the sportsbooks algorithms don't really recognize the way how fast these runs happen in the NBA right now. Now, let's get into it. I like the Utah Jazz minus 13 at OKC. This is one of those road favorites of 10-plus, 61% the last four seasons. It's tanking season for the Thunder. Sam Presti is very, very good at his job. LeBron is right. Somehow, OKC last year lost 23 of their last 25 games going only 7-18 against the spread. We're starting to see the exact same signs. Lou Dort, your hammy hurts. Don't worry about it. You're not there. Josh Giddy hasn't played in a couple of games. This news just came across the wire. He's going to be out for a while, says Mark Danigolt, his coach. So, 
I think the Thunder are a good fade down the stretch in general, and the Jazz are the rowdiest team in the NBA. They've won 75% of their games by 10-plus over the last two seasons. So they usually win. They were the number one seed last year, and they usually win in dominant fashion. Real quickly. Because yep. I'm, I agree with everything you just said, but I got burned on them a couple times this year. But they seem to be back and healthy. Interestingly enough, OKC is only nine and twenty-two at home, straight up, but they're fifteen and twelve against the number. What, what do you make of that? You know that that coach Mark Antonigold does deserve a lot of credit because so many times they've been down big in the second half of games and they've come down to at least make it interesting, but not so much of late. We just saw right. on Friday they were close in the Timberwolves and ended up losing by 37. Right, only three and nine against the number without Lou Dort, who's going to be out for this game. Okay, now, that's that's a key factor. Go ahead, continue on. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the Memphis Grizzlies, another road favorite of 10 plus. At the Houston Rockets, minus 11 currently at FanDuel. And this is simple, too. Who is going to Toyota Center tomorrow? Rockets fans or people that are excited to see one of the great age 22-year-old point guards seasons that we've ever seen? Here's the list of highest scorers this early in their career, 22 years or younger. Shaq, 29 points in 94. Mello, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant, and then John Morant at 28 points per game is right on that list. The fact that the Rockets are the worst defense in the league, especially against guards, I feel like that excites Memphis, that excites John Morant, and excites Memphis the people is going a to cover go cover machine. And they cover are the number, machine. The number one ATS team in the league. 21 units, you'd be up if you just bet them blindly all year. You know who said that? To me early, A.J. Hoffman. He doesn't follow the NBA, he'll admit, but he's like, you know what? I kind of like the Grizzlies, and he reminds me every single time they cover, which this season has been about two out of every three games. So, good call, A.J. I'll give you credit for that. All right, last favorite. Let's go with the L.A. Clippers, minus four. This is more of, and they're hosting the New York Knicks. Yeah. This is more of a fate of the Knicks because they have fallen and they've got, have not been able to get up. If you look at their offensive metrics, you look at their defensive metrics, week by week, month by month, they've just gotten worse. Two minutes. And this is an extension from last season where Tom Thibodeau came in. They were excellent on defense, guys that never really hustled that way before. Julius Randle led the league in minutes. And now we've seen it again the second year. It's been a rough go of it. The last week or the last month, they've been a bottom 10 defense, which for a Tom Thibodeau team has to be irking them. Since the All-Star break, since they've come back, they've been a bottom five defense. The Clippers, just the exact opposite. They've been ascending, getting used to playing without Paul George. Reggie Jackson had a 36-point night against against the Lakers. He's ready to go. And Ty Lue, I think people are not are not really recognizing that well, what Reggie Jackson said after the game. Make no mistake about it, he is the best NBA coach. Strong words from Ty Lue. And when you put up... 7 and 0 straight up at ATS against his crosstown rivals the Lakers it's it's not it's it, the argument starts to make starts to take form couple of things uh you might wink in a nod to the over in the Clippers game as well because the Knicks as you said terrible defensively they played just well enough to lose they lost to the Phoenix JV team Friday night and uh, they were up by 13 head into the fourth quarter and blew it by the way Utah they're coming off a 34 point loss to New Orleans and you know they're going to bounce back final word 
Yes, exactly right. They've covered 60% when coming off a straight-up loss the last two seasons. It's pretty rare, but they actually have a blowout loss. I think they come out and have a blowout for themselves. They very much could. Utah, you know what? That might be one to really look at. Don't get scared on the line because that could be, you know, 117 to 95 written all over it. All right, good stuff, McKenzie. We'll see how you do this week, and you'll be back in these same slots next week. That is Mackin' on Sports from McKenzie Rivers. Coming up is George Costanza. What said? We're taking it up a notch. What kind of brand new fool are you, followed by What My Name? Keep it locked. This is Bernie Fratto. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday and Fox Sports Radio. The Fox Sports train keeps rolling right on. Three down, one to go. Still plenty of things to get to in the show. I'm Bernie Fratto coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio Studios. We will take you up to 3 a.m. Pacific, 6 a.m. Eastern. And one of my favorite things about this final hour of the show, the power hour, is we get to... Loosen it up a little bit and have a little fun. And uh, and as I said, heading into the top of the hour, as George Costanza once belted out, we're taking it up a notch. And the way we start has become a fan favorite because every day around the world, and certainly in America, from sea to shining sea, somebody does something really stupid that we affectionately refer to as what kind of brand new fool are you? All right, so I'll begin. We take you back out to Dallas, Texas. And, you know, this is a delayed reaction, brand new fool. And I'm going to invoke the name of a gentleman who has been under the employ of Jerry Jones for three decades. I believe, in fact, he's the senior vice president of public relations. His name is Rich Dalrymple. Now, you may have heard that uh, recently the Dallas Cowboys uh, agreed upon a settlement with four of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders because apparently or allegedly a few years back, Rich Dalrymple had to use the restroom, and there's got to be 497 restrooms in AT&T field, but he chose the one that he used the access key that happened to be adjacent to the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders dressing room. Word has it, allegedly, that in addition to using the restroom, he pulled out a cell phone and, uh, you know, took a few uh, snapshots while he was out as the young ladies were dressing. Not good. Not good. So what's interesting is, although he denied everything and there was some lack of proof other than there I think there may have been one or two eyewitness accounts Dallas ended up settling now what's interesting is I had heard did Rich Dalrymple had been removed from his duties when this happened or just retired suddenly now I heard today that Rich Dalrymple is actually still there so if you're going to take Jerry Jones money and you're going to be a loyal advisor and you're going to be a key cog in this iconic franchise, and you're going to pull something like that, all I got to say is, what kind of brand new fool are you? Chris Perfett. Well, Bernie, we don't usually have a whole company of fools, but this time I guess we do. Uh, so right now, in court right now, is the rental car company Hertz taken to task by an uh, ongoing lawsuit of more than over 100 customers suing Hertz for about half a billion dollars in bankruptcy court, claiming that they were stopped by police 
arrested and sometimes spent months in jail for quote unquote stealing these their the cars that they had just rented. Oh. Like the, this was happening to over a hundred customers for Hertz. Now, what happened here? And this is you. You may ask yourself, how did this even come about? Well, apparently, and we learned this through court unveiling. Hertz tried to say that a lot of these documents were company secrets, but did not convince the the uh, bankruptcy court judge. So we got them out. So here's what happened. Here, if you are ever accused of stealing a car from Hertz, this is what's happened. Basically, if you go in to Hertz and you say, hey, I want an extension of my rental car. I've got to stay a few more days. All right, fine. So they put a hold on the the company places a temporary hold for payment on your credit card or debit card. Now, if that hold, however, fails to go through, like if your credit card's close to the limit or they haven't yet paid the bill, Hertz goes ahead and files a report that the car is stolen by conversion to law enforcement. A little technicality. So this was the part Hertz was trying to keep and said was a competitive advantage that they did not, I mean, competitive uh, secret that they, they did not want leaked. And I could see why. Because apparently, according to files from that bankruptcy court, Hertz filed about 3,365 police reports every year for quote-unquote stolen vehicles. So the fools here are Hertz going after their own customers and trying to say that they were stealing their cars. Fair enough. That is, It looks like a preemptive strike to protect themselves, but it's obviously false alarm in many cases. All right, Chris, thanks. Brian Finley, you're up. Yes, Bernie, my fool is going to be Cleveland Cleveland Cavalier head coach in J.B. Bickerstaff. You're saying to yourself, well, why? Well, you know, oftentimes, Bernie, when we watch coaches get upset, we see a step-by-step process to them ultimately getting ejected. But you really didn't see anything coming, no signs from Bickerstaff until... The third quarter of a Friday game where he absolutely lost it. He became enraged and he said every foul word essentially that you could read from his mouth. He got ejected, he was tossed, and he has to pay $20,000. And what did he do, Bernie, afterwards? Who did he apologize to? Well, first he said that he is sorry for his actions and that he needs to improve and be better. And it's a combination of frustrations that just boiled over. But he apologized to his team, his staff, and children. So... Anybody out there, children of the world, he is apologizing for. And clearly, it went from 0 to 100 really quickly. Did not get off court in time. And with the recent losing slide that the Cavs are dealing with, this was just a way of him venting. Interesting stuff, Brian. Word has it when he got home, his mom made him wash his mouth out with soap. Yes. I've been able to confirm that. <laughs> yes. All right, good stuff, Brian. Paul Benson, bring us home. Um, so actor Sam Elliott, uh, was on the Mark Marin podcast and he was offering his thoughts on the, uh, Netflix film, the power of the dog, which is a really oh, yeah. good movie. Yes. Um, it'll prob- cover batch, right? yeah, so we'll, it will probably win, uh, the Academy Award this year. It's, I think it's got the most nominations. Um, but he was upset because the director, uh, Jane Campion is a woman from New Zealand and what could she possibly know about the American West? And all that stuff, and um, I'm going to call Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott out here a little bit. He is, uh, he was born, I believe, in Sacramento, California, moved with his parents to Portland, Oregon, and currently resides in Malibu, California. So I would like to ask Sam Elliott 
what exactly he knows about the American West to make himself the uh, arbiter of who can determine what the American West is and what it was like. Uh, I thought that was the dumbest thing I've heard from an actor this week, for sure. Fair enough. Bo Benson demanding accountability and self-awareness. All right, guys, another rousing another rousing version, uh, adaptation, rendition of What Kind of Brand New Fool Are You, which leads us into What My Name, America's favorite fast-growing game. All right, the first couple of these might be tough, guys, uh, but uh, you, you've risen to the occasion. So in today's theme, uh, 15 years ago today, I won a golf tournament, and it was the final ever Doral Open by shooting a 69 on the final day to capture it. Chris Perfett, what my name? Um, no. Got it's all right. It's not easy, folks. It's not easy out there. All right. 15 years ago today, the final ever Doral Open. I shot a 69 on the final day to capture it. Here's a clue. It's a big name. Brian Finley, what my name? Phil Nicholson. Ooh, we were fairly warm. No, but good one. All right. Won the Doral Open 15 years ago today. It was the final ever Doral Open by shooting a 69 on the final day. Bo Benson, what my name? Uh, Tiger Woods. Look at you. Winner, winner. So, yeah, I think I'm hoping you picked up on the clue because Tiger and Phil are kind of joined at the hip, right? So. There you have it. All right. So, I've been a little critical of the Lakers. And uh, this is sort of a homage to LeBron's 56 points. I've been a little critical of the Lakers this year, but on this day, back in 2000 against the Clippers, I scored 61 points. Chris Perfett, what my name? Uh, I'm going to say Charles Barkley. I'm sorry. Now... Barkley may have played for the Lakers at some point in his career. I'm just not oh, aware. Oh, Lakers. So, okay. okay, you're a busy man. All right. I've been critical of the Lakers, but on this day, back in 2000, I scored 61 points against the Clippers as a member of the Lakers. What my name? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Brian Finley. I apologize. It's on me. Brian Finley. Let's go with Kobe Bryant. Ooh, you're getting warm. All right, Bull, can you go two for two? On this day in 2000, as a member of the Lakers, I scored 61 points against the Clippers. What my name? Uh, Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, Bull's two for two. <laughs> right, I'm going to switch up the order this time. Bull, you're just showing off now. You're just showing <laughs> off. All right, in keeping with the spirit of Hand size in the NFL. On a 663 hands measured in the last 35 years, my hands were the largest of any quarterback measured in the history of the NFL Combine. I checked in at 11 and a half inches. Bo Benson, what my name? Uh, Brock Osweiler. Well, you're fairly warm. Fairly warm. All right. 11 and a half inches, that's what my hands measured in at. Largest in the history of the combine for a quarterback. Chris Perfett, what my name? Brett Favre. 
Not bad. I love it. Uh, extra credit for answering quick. But, no, I'm I'm sorry. The judges won't allow it. All right, we'll see if the crew can go three for three. It's up to Brian Finley. No pressure. I had the largest. Well, let me try that again. My hands were measured at the largest at 11 and a half inches of any quarterback in the NFL Combine. Brian Finley, what my name? Danny DeVito. Very close. Very close. <laughs> All right. You might, you guys might have to Google this, but you're sports fans. You might not have to. It was actually the legendary Jim Druckenmiller. Do you guys remember that name? Never Jim heard of him. Druckenmiller. Google him. He had a, he had a big Never heard of college him. career. <laughs> I love it. Here's, what the, here's why this is noteworthy. Because Jim Druckenmiller, when he got to the NFL, he played a total of six games. He threw one more touchdown than I did and four more interceptions. One touchdown, four interceptions, and six games. But he had an 11-and-a-half-inch hands. So he had that going for him. All right, guys, great job, as always, on uh, what kind of brand-new fool are you and what my name. Coming up, the USFL is all set to start on April. I think it's like April 28th, something around. Oh, no, check. Maybe it might be April 16th. Got to look that up. What's the moral of the story? They might not get off the ground before they even started. But let me unpack it. That sounds a little dire. That may not be a fair tease. But I will tell you, they do have something they have to deal with based on what happened in federal court Monday. I'm Bernie Fratter. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. Keep it locked right here. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday and Fox Sports Radio. Hey, we're back on Fox Sports Sunday, Fox Sports Radio. I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. After Brian's update, Chris Perfett will be checking in with his report on the world of soccer. They call it football over there. We call it football here if you're playing football, which is what the USFL will be looking to do here coming up in April. As a matter of fact, they just had their draft, and uh, all eight players selected in the first round were quarterbacks. The Michigan Panthers, uh, they selected a guy named Shea Patterson. You you may remember him. He played at University of Michigan, but he transferred from Mississippi where he lost a job to Jordan Tiamu, who actually was drafted second by the Tampa Bay Bandits. Uh, Then right on down the line, Brian Scott, Ben Holmes, Clayton Thorson out of Northwestern, the Houston Gamblers, who were once quarterbacked by Jim Kelly. True story. Uh, the Birmingham Stallions draft Alex McGowell. Kyle Laletta goes to the Pittsburgh Maulers, always one of my funny favorite USFL teams. And then Kyle Sloter by the New York Orleans Breakers. And by the way, there are, um, real quickly, there there are some you know noteworthy coaches. There's not a lot of name recognition with, with this league. It just, there just can't be, okay? But uh, Jeff Fisher former head coach of the Rams, who is known for going 8-8 eight and eight every year. Uh, he'll be with the Michigan Panthers. Uh, Todd Haley, you know his history, and of course is an offensive coordinator in Kansas City. He'll be with the Tampa Bay Bandits, which were once coached by uh, Steve Spurrier back in the day. Now Skip Holtz, the son of Lou Holtz, he'll coach the Birmingham Stallions. Kevin Sumlin, he's been around. He'll coach the Houston Gamblers. You, rem- you 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 should know or may remember or certainly have heard of the fact that the USFL had a nice little run from 83 to 85 before they folded. The big mistake they made uh, 
was that they decided to move to the fall and compete with the NFL. And I think in retrospect, a couple of the owners thought this might be a ploy to get an NFL team to absorb one of them so they could have an NFL franchise. That never happened. Uh, but it was an amazing league back in, it's certainly right out of the gate in 83. You had Heisman Trophy winners, Herschel Walker, Mike Rozier. You had all the big names, Reggie White. Uh, let me just put it to you this way. That league was really good. I lived in Southern California at the time. I used to go to LA Express games. They had Steve Young. Steve Young signed that infamous $40 million deal back in 83. I don't even know if he ever collected on all of it. Uh, I saw a duel once between Steve Young and Jim Kelly, uh, one of the greatest games no one ever saw, the Houston Gamblers and the and the, uh, and, and the L.A. Express. Uh, Young did go on to win a Super Bowl. Obviously, Kelly went on four Super Bowls in, uh, in Buffalo. But the league was loaded with talent. Top to bottom, you had great coaches, uh, George Allen, and uh, I just mentioned Steve Spurrier. Right on down the line, Jim Mora, senior, was coach of the Philadelphia Stars, who won a championship. Michigan Panthers won a championship. Then it all kind of came crashing down in the summer of 85, and then there was a lawsuit in the spring of 86, and the USFL actually won, and they got treble damages. They were awarded a dollar, and that was it. They were awarded three dollars. Trouble damages, triple, because they claimed, I think, the NFL interfered, whatever. Now the USFL is back in name. And what's interesting is that some of those former owners are not taking kindly to this. And last Monday in federal court, they sued. They sued the NFL. No, not the NFL, I'm sorry. The USFL with the idea that they want to prevent Fox from broadcasting these games as if these original owners back we're talking 30 years no 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 we're talking 39 years ago still have the rights to these teams now i'm not a lawyer i've never taken the bar I've taken enough law to know that a trademark lasts 10 years and it must be renewed every 10 years and about the fifth or sixth or seventh year, you, I believe you have to show how, how you're using that trademark as an integral part of your business. I, I'm, I, I don't know that I bet a finger, but pretty close, that none of these owners have bothered to renew their trademarks from their USFL franchisees and the USFL. By the way, interestingly enough, all the games will be played in Birmingham, Alabama. They're just retaining the old names for nostalgic sake. I, I can't imagine that any of the owners would have retained. Uh, look, could I be wrong? Could I be proven wrong? Sure. Uh, I would I would say that it's my honest, educated guess that none of the owners, one of them including Donald Trump, who was part owner of the New Jersey Generals, a team you know, had Brian Seip, Herschel Walker, a lot of good players. Like I said, 134 players. When that league folded, 134 players ended up in the National Football League the following year. And I'm talking some high-profile guys. So this was not a league that would to sneeze at. It's a shame it didn't work. Spring football's never really worked. But the notion that just because you had a stake in the league back in the mid-'80s, and perhaps you were one of the owners, 
of the New Jersey Generals or the Houston Gamblers or, or, or the Michigan Panthers or Tampa Bay Bandits that you automatically are grandfathered in for the rest of your life. You have a cradle-to-grave agreement that that trademark is yours. That's just not how the law works. You have to renew that trademark every 10 years. The notion that any of them would have renewed it once, much less three or four times since the league folded in 1985, to me, is a bit of a concern. Uh, and it's actually, that's not even the right adjective. It's not a concern. To me, it's a vagazi. I'm really not sure what they're trying to accomplish here, and I would expect that to get thrown out right away. Could I be surprised? Sure. Look, I told you, you never know. I mean, Bob Buecher once hit a home run off Sandy Koufax. I've, every time you see you, hey, you've seen it all, you see something new. But the interesting, the interesting thing here is this is just not very congruent. This, this doesn't add up. Now, I'm a bit of a slappy. I will sample the league, but I think it's got a hell of a road to hoe. You're not going to be able to name a lot of the players. You have to have, you know, in the United States, you know, it's like, it's what I call the Canadian Football League syndrome. In the United States, when we watch a sporting event, there has to be context. It has to be contextualized in the sense you have to know what the back story is. You have to know the rivalry, the meaning, the significance, the history, right? We've had the Gas House Gang and Murderer's Row and Ohio State versus Michigan. And you know who's playing. You know why they're playing. You know what it stands for. You know what's at stake. You don't know that. You're not going to know that here. And I don't know. And it's what I call, again, the Canadian Football League syndrome. The game is can be entertaining. It's fast. They're definitely professional athletes. Uh, half of the teams used to be named Rough Riders. Beyond that, you really don't know what the significance is. You know damn well when North Carolina and Duke get on the court what the significance is. When the Yankees and Red Sox tee it up, you know what the significance is. I hope the USFL makes it. I'm tired of seeing these leagues come in and go away, and they're clearly underfunded and overmatched. And I'm really not so sure how much of an appetite there is for football after the NFL season ends, unless it's NFL football. Not all football is NFL football. So keep an eye on that court case, and hopefully we'll – Keep an eye on the field. Coming up, Chris Perfett's World of Soccer. But first, let's go to the man with the golden pipes, the silver-tongued devil, Brian Finley with the latest. Thank you, Bernie. From court cases to in-court action where LeBron James had 56 points for the Lakers last night as they terrorized the Warriors 124 to 116. The Timberwolves get the best of the Trailblazers 135 to 121. Carl Anthony Towns staying in strong with 36 points along with 15 rebounds. The Memphis Grizzlies are second place in the Western Conference. How about that? John Moran, 25 points to propel Memphis over the Magic 124 to 96. The Heat got a victory against the 76ers 99 to 82. That for Miami is their 11th win in their last 13 games and the Mavericks had to climb out of a 19 point deficit and do it without Luka Doncic just to weather the Kings 114 to 113. In college basketball number 17 UCLA finishes the regular season in conference as the number 2 team in the Pac-12 after they dust aside number 6 
16 USC 75 to 68. North Carolina upsetting number four Duke 94 to 81, spoiling Coach K's final game at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Number three Baylor takes care of Iowa State 75 to 68. James Akinjo scoring 20 points as he helped lead the Bears to what is a share of the Big 12 title. Number two Arizona all over Cal 89 to 61 with that win the Wildcats lock up the Pac-12 regular season title. Number six, Kansas gets the job done against number 21, Texas 70 to 63 in overtime. David McCormick had a standout performance of 22 points along with 10 rebounds. Number seven, Kentucky gets the job done against the Florida Gators 71 to 63. The Wildcats, keep in mind, have won four straight when they go down to Gainesville. Number eight, Purdue, they storm past Indiana in a close fashion, 69 to 67. Sasha Stefanovic hit that go-ahead three-pointer, and Matt point, uh, Matt Painter, I should say, his Boilermakers. That ends a two-game losing streak for them. Also, the Arnold Palmer Invitational is happening right now in Orlando. The PGA Tour. Fourth round, final round is later today, and right now it is a tie for the lead with. You've got Billy Horschel and Taylor Gooch, both at 7-under. Everybody looking up to them. They will be the last to tee off today on Sunday. With that, let's get it back to a man who I don't think, Bernie, you teed off on the USL, but you certainly said that they've got their work cut out for them as they try to make things happen here in the spring. Back to you. All right, thanks, Brian. You know, there's a drink called an Arnold Palmer. That's an amazing coincidence. (laughs) Anyway, something we can talk about uh, next year. All right. At this time every week, uh, we go to our man who specializes in this area, Chris Perfett's World of Soccer. And what's interesting is tomorrow, well, actually it's Sunday now, it's Blue Derby Day, Man City versus Man United. A big day. However, it's overshadowed by other things which Chris will share us with, will share with us in Chris Perfett's World of Soccer. That's right, Bernie. Big, big Derby Day for Manchester. Um, I wish I could say it's a little bit better, but the way the, way the table's kind of playing out, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think I don't think it's for anything specific other than just pride and trying to stop Man City from just ascending yet again. But always a very exciting day. It's it's a very exciting day when City and United play, and United's obviously playing a little bit better in recent years. So we'll see how that plays out. But I think a lot of the press this week was on Chelsea, the other big name, one of the other big giant clubs from the Premier League, and it is that Chelsea is up for sale. So, in case you haven't known, there's been a little bit of a scuffle going on in the in Ukraine with Russia invading, and that has somehow affected the world of sports because a Russian citizen, a, Grush, a, a Russian oligarch by the name of Roman Abramovich, owns Chelsea. And facing, and under fear of facing sanctions from the British government, and I'm sure along with that, the crashing price of the ruble and everything else, Abramovich has decided to sell Chelsea. And now we've got a lot of interest in here. Chelsea is one of the big clubs out there. They are—they have been the reigning champion of Europe. They are third right now in Premier League table. Probably not going to win the title this this year. They're ten points. They're about thirteen points back of Man City. But Chelsea up for grabs is a massive, massive deal. A club with a ton of history, and uh, there's been several. Let's talk about some of the big partners that are coming in. 
Uh, first off, that uh, Redbird Capital Partners is apparently interested. They are a private equity company um, advised by Billy Bean, the Oakland Athletics uh, Moneyball man. Yeah, yeah. And also that Michael Rubin, who o- owns the merchandise group Fanatics, is working on a bid as well. However, a spokesman, however, told ESPN that Rubin's not intending to bid, is fully focused on Fanatics, but I think we could still see him in there. And then also Todd Boley, who's a part owner of the Dodgers and the Lakers, is working with a Swiss billionaire to put in their own bid. So we should see. I think I think it sounds like Redbird here is probably the big one, and that would, again, include Manhattan-based um, private equity company Jerry Cardinale and uh, Billy Bean. So uh, very interesting, the Americans jumping in. Obviously, Stan Kroenke is the big American owner who owns a Premier League club. That would be Arsenal. But other than Kroenke, there, Kroenke, there hasn't really been a lot of American ownership in the in the Premier League. Now, there was for a while, there was a few different American owners, especially in the uh, Serie A and the Italian League. Uh, Roma was owned by several minority owners of the Red Sox for a while. I think there's a few other American owners across Italy, but there's definitely American money at, at interest for Chelsea. And it's not hard to see why Chelsea is one of the biggest brands out there right now. It's it's in the heart of London. It's uh, just a club with just a ton of star power, and it's a huge, huge brand. You know, it's interesting. Billy Bean, I, I guess he was an advisor to this Dutch team you're talking about. He finally bought a 5% stake a couple years ago. They've admitted that his uh, advice and counsel as a consultant has helped them. I don't know. I don't know where they what's what the record has been in the last four years. Do you, I, I just know it's a Dutch team. Do you know what the name of it is, Chris? The team that uh, uh, Dutch. Is that what it is? I I don't. I, I wouldn't know that off the top of my head. No. Okay. Yeah. It's I, I yeah. It's, it's interesting angle there, uh, Billy Bean. So yeah. It, look, it, as this continues on with this war in Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, what more? You know, what continued collateral damage do you believe will be done to the game of soccer? Well, I think we've already seen it this week, where several, where several, um, you know, since we're on the roads to the World Cup, several teams, including Poland, did not want to play. I think it was Poland. Excuse me if I'm wrong. Um, did not want to play Russia at all. Um, there, there's been several, several national teams who have sat out in protest against playing the Russian national team. So, as with all things, like. The politics kind of bleeds into it. And, you know, I, I'm not going to get too political here. I do think that, you know, sometimes the the intent to send the right message is jarring a little bit with, like, players and athletes who have no real say over the current situation. So I'm not sure. Um, I know FIFA has sent out a ban on Russia right now. I'm trying to remember all the details off the top of my head. I think it... If I remember, um, in, yeah, here it is. FIFA did announce, this is the other big news movie. FIFA did announce that it was indefinitely suspending Russian representative teams. Yes. So it means Russia will probably not be competing in in the World would, Cup. Would, would Cup. they have been a contender? Is that one of those? They, they would have probably, I no, Russia has always been kind of a fringe team when it comes to the World Cup. They might have made a, a good bid, but... Outside of when it was in Sochi, they were, um, or in Russia, excuse me, the, the Olympics were in Sochi. They didn't, re- they, they've always been kind of an outside group when it comes to UEFA. They just don't match up against the other big UEFA. If they had a, if they had a favorable group, they might have gotten in, but UEFA has so many, 
heavy hitters. They've just never really been been one to really compete. All right, good stuff, Chris. This is a story to follow. We knew heading into 2022, given the World Cup, uh, among other things, that soccer would always be in the news. But now, given this uh, really fairly horrific situation uh, that uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin have imposed on Ukraine, uh, it does always. It manages to infringe upon the sports world as well, so you'll keep us posted coming up it's never too soon the conference tournaments are starting in basketball and while we haven't particularly talked about it and i don't think folks have watched it or have been as interested with the same intensity as past years i look for that to flip quickly as we are one week away from march madness selection sunday and you're already starting to hear so-and-so just punched their ticket to the dance you're going to hear it right and left over the next six seven days so it's never too soon i'm going to give you some tips to fill out your bracket from a Las Vegas perspective. I'm Bernie Fratto. We're coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. Keep it locked right here. You're listening to Fox Sports Sunday on Fox Sports Radio. Hi, right, we're back on Fox Sports Sunday, Fox Sports Radio. Bernie Fratto coming to you live from the Las Vegas Fox Sports Radio studios. Before I go any further tonight, I want to thank my broadcast team, and they've been with me since 11 p.m. Pacific, Saturday night. Here in the West Coast, that would be Chris Perfett, uh, Bo Benson, and Brian Finley on all the updates. Thanks for all you do behind the scenes, turning all the dials, keeping us glued together so that we can bring this fine entertainment to a grateful nation. Speaking of entertainment, a week from Thursday is one of the most anticipated and looked forward to days in the sports calendar because it is the first day of the NCAA tournament, March Madness. I, you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I guess you could count the playing games and such. Those matter too, and you'll watch those too. There's nothing like that first Thursday morning. The first game will tip off here about 9:15 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, and you've got wall-to-wall games. 16 games on Thursday, 16 games on Friday, eight and eight on Saturday and Sunday. And the next thing you know, just like that, after one easy weekend, you go from 64 to 16. You're in the Sweet 16, which brings us to your bracket because you'll be looking forward to filling out your bracket. No doubt, millions and millions of people do brackets every year, and uh, you're looking for your bragging rights. And, and there's no you know, right or wrong way, per se, to fill out your bracket, and it's kind of a personal journey that you can find something on your competitor that they may not know. But the truth of the matter is there are some simple guidelines you really should you really should stick to if you're looking for those bragging rights, all right? And while it's good to add a little bit of variance to your Final Four, for instance, when it comes to picking a champion, it's probably best to pick your favorite of the number one seeds because since 1980, you'll check that, 1993, 19 of the 27 national champions have come into the tournament as a number one seed. So you do want to pick a number one seed to win it all. Eight of the past 11 NCAA tournaments, their champions were number one seeds, including last year's uh, champion, Baylor. So history is going to tell you that this trend will continue, and this year's champion, the one that will be cutting down the nets, will be a number one seed. However, comma, under no circumstances should you pick all four number one seeds to reach the final four. 
in the entirety of the tournament, going back to when Moby Dick was a minnow. It's happened once in the tournament history back in 2008. And since then, you know, 80% of the number one seeds have reached the Final Four. No, that's a false statistic. Let me try that again. In the last nine years, if you add up all the number uh, one seeds, so there'll be a total of 36 of them, 36 number one seeds, obviously in the last nine years, simple math. Just 12 of those number one seeds even reached the Final Four. So you're talking about a 33% of the number one seeds just get into the Final Four. That's not great odds. So you're not going to have all four number one seeds in the Final Four. However, again, follow this. You're going to want to pick a number one seed to win it all. All right. A couple of other basic ones. Gonzaga just locked him right into the Final Eight. The Elite Eight, excuse me. Gonzaga, this is where they live, man. They have the longest active Sweet 16 streak. They've appeared in four of the last six Elite Eights. And they've got the best team, at least on paper, in college basketball this year. And then they'll get a, you know, they'll get a, uh, they'll get a 16 seed in their first game. And then they'll have a favorable 8-9 matchup uh, in their second game. That'll get them to the Sweet 16. But then most likely they'll find a vulnerable team who's probably a four or five seed who's already won two in a row or the odds of winning three in a row, not great. That's the region they'll be in, all right? Now, not everybody is calling Gonzaga a complete lock to make the Final Four, but they have the best odds to at least make the rest regional final. So if you're dead set on, you know, having Gonzaga getting upset just because you don't think they're you like them or they're they're overrated or they have issues with dealing with lead athleticism. Don't plan on them getting upset before the Final Four. Maybe in the Elite Eight, but that's about it. Look for Gonzaga once again to get to the Elite Eight. Now, here's a couple of other things. We're in a world that's constantly talking about metrics and analytics, and you know how I feel about that subject matter. I think it very much has a place and an important place. But for me, analytics are a guideline. They are not an inflexible anchor. You don't believe me? Just ask Blake Snell. Ask the Dodger benches. They all did the happy dances. Blake Snell was taken out of the game two years ago. And, of course, the Dodgers benefited greatly. They looked at him and said, we've had about enough of this guy, but that's what the analytics told him to do. So you live by the sword, die by the sword. But while, while analytics may be a very good way of comparing all 357 college basketball teams against each other, and then, you know, relatively complicated way, I guess you can sort of use metrics to compare to, to opponents against each other. The truth of the matter is, in order to really handicap March Madness, you have to understand all the nuances that go into these games. I would focus more on matchups. If two teams play a similar type, the better team is going to be at a huge advantage. However, if one team, say, plays a defense that forces the other team to shoot threes, and that team shoots them really well, that advantage suddenly disappears. So all of a sudden, the better team, even though the metrics might show you that by the computer, isn't really the better team because it hasn't taken up that matchup in that one elimination game. Finally, there's an old saying, a star might win you one game, but a team might win them all, but not when it comes to the tournament. 
It has a survive and advance mentality, so you got to focus on individual matchups you're banking on. In these series game playoffs, live or die, a star, more often than not, will make the big bucket. All right, thanks so much for listening tonight, folks. I'm Bernie Fratto. This is Fox Sports Sunday and Fox Sports Radio. Keep it locked. Up next, Brian No and Andy Furman.